You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Today, we begin a new sermon series in the book of Genesis uh, that we are calling Origins, uh, the beginning of all things. Um, as we come out of talking about what it means to live on mission uh, here at TCC, our conviction and our regular rhythm is to preach through books of the Bible and chunks of the Bible. And so uh, we're going to be in Genesis 1 through 11. And by God's grace, we'll pick up Genesis 12 through 50. Uh, at another point, we're going to take probably the first four chapters before we begin an Advent series at the end of November. And then we'll pick back up uh, Genesis 5 through 11 at the beginning of the year. Uh, but As we think about what it means to be God's people in our day, uh, it's important for us to be grounded um, and to have an understanding of the foundational truths uh, of of life, of of who we are, of who God is, of of, of what this world is all about, what's wrong with this world, as as well as what hope this world has and and where we're headed. And and these questions, what it means to be human, uh, what this creation is, what our responsibility is in relation to creation, what sin is, our understanding of sin and temptation, our understanding of of marriage, our understanding uh, of these foundational, essential truths are grounded in the Bible and particularly in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Uh, the, the, the book of Genesis is not only the first book of the Bible, but it's the first book of what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that's written uh, by Moses uh, as Israel comes out of, uh, of slavery in Egypt and, and God has called Moses to lead them out and God has given them his word. It's a word that's been tried and tested. It's true and trustworthy. We're going to dig into Genesis 1 through 11, and we're going to discover that though Genesis isn't a science book, neither is it irrelevant to scientific inquiry. Neither is it irrelevant to our understanding of foundational truths about nature and about creation. And so uh, the book of Genesis is written, as I said, by Moses, and God leads Moses to write the book of of Genesis and ultimately the Pentateuch uh, for his people, for Israel. And just like Israel is coming out of bondage and into the into the promised land, the, uh, the the Pentateuch, starting with Genesis, is written to to give them an understanding of who it is that has redeemed them, who it is that is calling them to walk in obedience to His law, who it is that's delivering them into this promised land. This isn't a tribal deity that's like the gods of the Egyptians. This is a God who claims to be the Creator of everyone and everything. He's the one true God. His mighty works reveal who he is. He has no need to introduce himself. His works introduce himself uh, in and of themselves. And yet, even though God has no need to introduce himself, we can look at this creation. Paul will tell us in Romans and see that there is a God who's powerful and who's sovereign, who's made all these things. God indeed has spoken. And this is what's profound about Genesis is that as we, as we wrestle with these foundational truths about who we are, about this world, about God, about ourselves, about uh, our need for, for God, our, our brokenness, our sin, uh, our hope for restoration and redemption, we are not trying to figure these things out by ourselves. But God has spoken. 
And because God has spoken, we can trust what he has said, and he's revealed himself to us in his word. And that's what brings us to the book of Genesis. So I decided to to pick this because I figured that it was the least controversial thing that we could talk about. Um, Things like the age of the earth and how God created and uh, evolution and uh, all of these things uh, are right here. Uh, at least the questions are raised, not perhaps by the Bible, uh, but but by our own cultural context. And uh, and and before we jump into uh, Genesis one, chapter one uh, through chapter two, verse three, I, I want to give us a, a maybe a just a reminder to approach the topic with humility. Uh, God said this to Job in Job 38, 4 through 7. He wasn't, Job wasn't questioning God about the days of creation or about the age of the earth, uh, but he was wrestling with why God did what he did uh, and understanding God's ways and his works. And God said this to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The answer to God's question is we weren't even uh, in existence yet, right? Uh, the, the questions that God asks are meant to bring Job to a place of humility as he wrestles with trying to understand why God does what he does and how God is working in his life. And, and I think it's a, a word for us as we approach these topics to, to approach them with a sense of humility, with a deep conviction. Here's, here's what my commitment is to you as your pastor. My commitment is to approach God's word as true and trustworthy. Uh, we, we say that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. It is given to us by God, revealing himself to us. We can take it to the bank. And yet as we approach God's word, we approach it with humility that God's word is inerrant, that God's word is true and trustworthy. My understanding of it isn't always. I'm trying my best to be faithful to God's word. I'm going to point you to what I believe God's word says, but we approach it with humility. And in fact, as I've been working through this, there's a lot of, if you want to, you know, I think it was in in Ecclesiastes where um, Solomon says that the writing of books uh, knows no end. You know, there's just an incessant uh, information that comes and and quarreling over what things mean. And if you want to find a lot of books written about all the different opinions uh, about Genesis, particularly Genesis 1 and 2, you're going to find a lot. Uh, But there's one book in particular that I just want to point to you uh, here as we begin uh, this study. And it's a book written uh, by uh, two professors actually at the at the seminary that I'm getting my Ph.D. at at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, One of them is now retired, Mark Rooker. The other one is named Kenneth Keithley. Uh, They wrote written a book called 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution. And just a shameless plug, the editor of this series is my uh, major professor, Benjamin Merkel. Um, This book, 40 Questions, uh, goes through just about anything and everything you could want to know about creation and evolution. Uh, I'm not saying that it gives all the answers, but it raises the important questions and it tells you how Christians have wrestled with them. Uh, And just the fact that this book exists reminds us of why we need a little bit of humility, that if you can write a book about 40 questions that doesn't give you the definitive answer to all the questions, it reminds us that we need some humility to approach it. So if you wrestle with questions as it relates to creation, as it relates to evolution, you're not satisfied with your own understanding of where you currently sit, 
then this book I recommend to you. One, uh, one uh, editor and, and author said, if I had the power to require every Christian parent, pastor, professor to read two books on creation and evolution, ideally alongside their children or their church or their students, it would be this book, 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution, and another book, which I don't have shown here, called Controversy of the Ages, Why Christians Should Not Divide Over the Age of the Earth. So I say this at the outset uh, because my goal isn't to walk you through what they say. My goal is going to be to walk you through what God's word says. However, as we think about what God's word says, it's helpful to know that there are resources out there. This book, I think, is like $9.99 on Kindle, maybe 20 bucks at max uh, on uh, for a hard copy of the book. Uh, now, along the way, if you have questions about any of this, you can email me. My email is chris at open door, excuse me, treasury, tccannarbor.com. Uh, so my old church uh, where I served in North Carolina. Uh, but you could reach me there, chris at tccannarbor.com. I would love to answer uh, any of your questions uh, that you have. Uh, so uh, please, after this sermon, make sure to email me, chris at tccannarbor.com. He's not even in here to defend himself. But... Um, <clears throat> But at the heart of what we look at in Genesis 1 uh, and Genesis 2, chapter verse 3, is what, what we declare in the Apostles' Creed. There's a lot that we're going to say today. But the Apostles' Creed, written in the early church to, to declare the essentials of what we believe, begins in this way. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Genesis 1 tells us, of God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. <clears throat> We're going to see a little bit of an overview, and then I'm going to dive in uh, to some important points that I want us to, uh, to make sure that we hold on to. Uh, here's, here's a brief overview, I think, of what Genesis 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3 is saying. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 give us initial the initial act of creation it says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and it says in verse 2 that the initial creation that god made was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters so here in genesis 1 verses 1 through 2 we have this initial act of creation and the initial form that creation took now Here's, here, there's all kinds of minefields as we walk through this about what Christians believe about all these things. Some Christians believe that there is a, a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. And that gap between verse 1 and verse 2 is what accounts for the earth uh, and creation being as old as it is. Some even believe that there was an initial creation uh, of life without humanity in Genesis 1-1, and that after the fall of Satan, uh, that earth is uh, is corrupted, and God then has to, in a, in a, in a, in a way, recreate uh, the earth starting in verse 3 through 31. That's not what I believe, and that's not what I'm commending to you. I'm just saying that these, these are how people are wrestling with these things. Uh, and the reason that people think that uh, there's this initial act of creation, we'll look at this in just a minute. The word created here used in verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a word that isn't used about any human being ever in the Bible. Uh, there's multiple words for create. You may see a word translated create that references what a man or woman does. But this particular word uh, is the only is only used with God as the subject. God alone creates in this way, as we're going to see, uh, out of nothing. 
Uh, he speaks and he creates. And so there's this clear uh, act of God in the beginning of creation. Some people wrestle because verse two, this word that the world, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Those terms elsewhere in the Bible can, can be used in a way that indicate that there's chaos, uh, that that things are without form and void. It's like a wilderness type experience. Uh, and the waters being deep and the darkness indicates perhaps something negative as some people uh, look at this. However, there's no indication that there's any chaos or any negativity uh, in God's initial act of creation. That would be reading into what it says. I'm not saying that, uh, that, that one could make an argument for it, but I don't think it's the best argument for our understanding uh, of what we're looking at as we approach this passage. Instead, what I believe it says, we have initial act of creation and that, that initial cre- act of creation that God has created the earth without form and void. And then beginning in verse 3, down through 31 of chapter 1, we have God filling the earth as well as giving shape to the earth. So it's without form and it's void or empty is what void means. And then God is going to give shape to the earth. He's going to uh, create the, the expanse in the sky. He's going to uh, part the earth and, and the waters are, and the seas are going to be created and the land is going to be created. And then he's going to fill it. He's going to fill it with, uh, with plant life. He's going to fill it with uh, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. And on the sixth day, he's going to fill it with the animals that are on the earth. And at the climax of God's creation, he's going to fill it with humanity made in his image. So we have in verses 1, 1 through 2, the initial act of creation. And then in verses 3 through 31, we have six days of creating. The first day, light was created. The second, the skies created. The third, dry land, seas, plants, and trees were created. The fourth day, the sun, the moon, and the stars were created. The fifth day, it says that the creatures that live in the sea and the creatures that fly were created. And then on the sixth day, as I mentioned, the animals that live on the land and human beings made in the image of God. Now, Uh, at the center of how Christians have wrestled with this are the days of creation. You see, as it goes throughout, we have this pattern that God said and that it was, and it was so. Uh, And and God is is creating by his word. uh, and, And then we get this summary statement at the end of each of the days. It says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then it goes on in verse nine or verse eight. Uh, and there was evening and there was morning and, the, and, and there was the second day. And it does that all the way through the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, it says that it's the seventh day, but it doesn't say that there's any evening or morning. It just says that the seventh day God rested from his work of creation. And our Christians wrestle with this and throughout history before, before Darwin comes along with his theory of evolution, Christians in the early church um, we're wrestling with this, the story of Augustine, our church father, um, uh, who we owe so much to. I quoted him last week as we talked about rest. He said that, that God has, has made us to find our rest in him and we are restless until we come to find our rest in him. Uh, and, and so Augustine is, uh, is this church father and he, he has a, uh, a literal understanding uh, as he sees it of the days of creation, but he begins to wrestle with that. He begins to doubt that and ultimately walks away from professing Christ. And then later on, he hears someone who interprets the days uh, as perhaps either an age or some type of distance and, uh, and, and, and not doubting that God actually created, but speaking to the way in which he created, he begins to come back around and, uh, and professes you know, faith in Christ and, um, and, and ultimately uh, becomes a significant figure in the life of the church. 
And, and as we wrestle with these things, uh, here's what I find. Most people are coming to Genesis with their ideas, either from science class or their understanding of evolution. And they're, they're saying, here's what I think I know. I want the Bible to comport with that. I would encourage you not to do that. I would encourage you to let God's word speak first and then wrestle with what that means as we make sense of life in this world. I'm, I'm going to get here in a moment to what I believe are the foundational truths. Francis Schaeffer in his book, Genesis and Space and Time, asked the question is, what is the least that we must believe about Genesis 1 in order to be faithful to what God's word says? That's, that's what I want to answer here in just a moment. So, so track with me until we get to that point. Uh, but, but here's what I'm saying. I, I think there are foundational truths that we have to believe about Genesis 1. I'm going to share with you, as I am, that I think that there is a, there's a strong argument to be made about uh, how one understands these things. And yet, as Christians, we have to be clear on what is foundational and be open-handed as we wrestle with an understanding of what God says, that God created, that He is the Creator, as well as wrestling with how exactly that happened and understanding how that happened in light of what we understand or think we understand today in relation to these matters. And too often, because we have such this convictional belief about the world and evolution perhaps, or that God couldn't have possibly done these things because we know this or that, we dismiss out of hand what God has to say. When I'm going to say that I think we might need to pause and rather than dismissing God out of hand because of what we think we understand, that we ought to first listen to him who spoke long before we began to wrestle with these things. Long before uh, scientists uh, thought that creation had a beginning, God's word tells us that it had a beginning and that God was the creator in the beginning. And he created, it says, in six days. Now, at the bottom line, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, that there is a, a sense of literal days that you see in, uh, in, in these passages. There, there, there are a number of ways in which day is understood. For example, in verse 3, it says, uh, in verse 5, God called the light day. Well, it doesn't mean that that was a 24-hour day, but it most likely means you have kind of uh, 12 hours of daytime and, and then 12 hours of nighttime. So we, we have that understanding of day. And then we have... Um, <clears throat> These six days where it lists a number, it's the first day, the second day, as well as a, a morning and evening structure to those days. However, it says in chapter two, <clears throat> um, uh, excuse me, in, uh, in chapter four, in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth. So, so not necessarily in reference to a 24 hour period, but this holistic scope in the, in the day, just like I would say back in my day, I used to be good at basketball. Back in my day, uh, I, I used to do this is, is almost the way in which it refers. We have to let God's word speak for itself and not impose what we think upon it. At the basis, uh, at the base, basic level, I think we see here, uh, from a, from a textual argument that we have literal 24-hour periods of time that is being spoken of in these days of creation. 
Now, Christians wrestle with this because it's like, how in the sixth day can God create all the animals on the land? And then in Genesis 2, it says that all the animals were brought before Adam and he named them. Uh, And then it was enough time for Adam to realize that none of those animals were made for him. And so God needed to make Eve a helper made for him. All of that takes place on the six days. And and some people would go, how could that take place in 24 hours? And some people uh, will will say, well, we, we need to step back and say, maybe these days, aren't literal days and that they're ages and periods of time. And of course, that raises questions about, well, how do you have light without the sun and how can the plant life exist for ages without the sun and all these things? And and it raises these questions. I'm not here to uh, adjudicate all those questions. Remember, email me, chris at tccannarbor.com if you want uh, to talk through some of those things. But just looking at what's stated here, we have six days of creation that, uh, that God works And he creates all that is. And he creates it out of nothing by his word. And then we see finally in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, we won't spend time on this because we talked especially about it last week. We have the seventh day of creation. I think we have uh, the seventh day as a day in which God rests from his work. His creation work is done and he's satisfied in his work. Uh, He's satisfied in his work, and we have a pattern in which he invites us to join us in the enjoyment of his work. I think that the Bible, my understanding is that the Bible gives us six 24-hour days of creation followed by a seventh day of God's rest. And, And I admit, as we look at what we know from science and what we know from, um, from, from our vantage point today, the, the earth appears older, um, and would be argued that it's older than, um, than, than what would be the case if the, there were 24, um, <clears throat> hour days, uh, and, and that this period of time, if uh, there's, there's all kinds of dating of the genealogies and other things in Genesis that we'll talk about later that lead to the conclusion that the earth is six to 10,000 years old. And of course, if you've ever been to a science class, you know that it's like billions of years old, accordingly, uh, to our science books. And so how do you reconcile those differences? I don't fully know how we reconcile those differences, but I do believe that this plays into the factor, plays into the equation. I believe the age of the earth appears older than perhaps it is based upon this literal understanding of a 24-hour, six 24-hour days of creation because God didn't make the earth in its infancy, but he made creation whole. He didn't make Adam a baby that grew up into a man. He made Adam presumably as a grown man obviously grown and old enough to have children. And presumably he made creation whole, not a little seedling of a tree that grew up into a massive tree, but he made things as they were. He spoke and God created. And so I think at the bare minimum, there's something to be said that if creation is made whole, then perhaps, and time starts with God creating, that perhaps our perception of how old the earth is, is changed based upon the fact that God made all things whole. And from that position of maturity, they've only grown over time. And so our perception of how old they are is affected by the fact that it doesn't start in infancy and grow to maturity, but it starts uh, being made whole and then grows from there. And, and I say all of this because, in fact, Exodus 20.11 kind of pushes this upon us. 20.11 is at the tail end of the command of the Sabbath in verses 8 through 11. Listen to what it says. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
At a base minimum, Moses is saying God created this pattern of six days of work and the seventh day of rest, and it's to, it's to shape the pattern of the Israelites' life. And so uh, here is what might be presented uh, as a young earth uh, creation perspective uh, with an allowance for a recognition of the, the creation being made whole that gives reason for its age. Now, there's all kinds of questions about the fossil record and uh, carbon dating and all these things. Again, Chris at TCCNArbor.com for those questions. But as we, uh, as we think through these things, uh, I, I want to say here's, here, here's the plan for us. As we wrestle with this, as we think through these things, let's keep coming back to God's word. As I listen to this, honestly, my, my favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon, um, uh, doesn't believe in young earth creation. Um, he's a, he's an old earth creationist. Uh, he, he, I look at, at others and this blows my mind. One of my other favorite preachers, John Stott believes that God chose from a number of hominids and insold two of them and Adam and Eve, uh, almost using the evolutionary process. One of my other favorite preachers, Tim Keller believes that there's some sense in which creation that God used evolutionary means to bring about creation. Now, I think there are reasons that that undermines, uh, what, what God says. And yet I also believe that for those who believe that the Bible is the final authority, that it's true and trustworthy, they're not dismissing the Bible as a myth, as false, but they're wrestling with what the Bible says, its context, how it's written, what it's saying. There's room for conversation for us to come back to God's word. And if perhaps you're saying, I, I really believe this, I, I, maybe, maybe you're studying something that, that relates to this. And you say, I, here's, here's what I know and here's what the Bible says and I wrestle with this. What I would say is, is don't, don't start by subjecting the Bible to your study, but start by bringing the study of the Bible and subjecting your study of whatever field it is that you're in to it. And then as well, having the humility to listen to one another and, and seek to understand these things together. So I told you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you uh, an account of God's word as a, a starting point that it's true and trustworthy, wrestling with what it believes, with humility to say what it says. But, but here's, here's what I want to come back to. What are the foundational truths here? In fact, the foundational truths, I think, don't really depend upon what the 24-hour uh, or a day-age understanding of the days are in Genesis 1. I don't think it depends upon what particularly, uh, where you fall on the age of the earth. I think it, it gives us some foundational truths that are important for us to grasp hold of. And the first is this. The foundational truth that we see in Genesis 1 is that God comes first. You see, <clears throat> Genesis 1 through two introduces the Bible and tells us that it's ultimately about God. God is the only actor in the beginning because he alone was before there ever was a beginning. Look at uh, the best way to say this as we talk about origins. God is the origin of all things. It says in uh, chapter one, verse one and verse 21 and verse 28, 27, God created that unique word that's in reference only to God that he created out of nothing. And he, he, God made in chapter 1, verses 16, 25, and 26. And then God makes by his word, God said. We see this woven throughout chapter 1. And look what happens. When God says what follows, it was so. 
God speaks and what he speaks comes to be. And then God alone blesses in chapter one, verse 21. Before anything else was, God was. God comes first. And the natural question is why? Why did God come first? And if he comes first, why did he create? And listen to the psalmist here, Psalm 136, five through nine. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast delight, uh, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord stands behind creation. God is triune as we understand throughout the totality of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here we see the Father uh, acting and working to bring all these things about. We see the presence of the Spirit of God in verse 2 that's hovering over the water, which reminds us of God's presence and His creative power uh, to bring about what He says. And then uh, as we piece this together with, with John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the word was with God and everything that came into being didn't come into being apart from the word. And the word is Jesus. Jesus uh, is present in the act of creation. We see that the triune God is behind creation. This means that before anything existed, that the triune God existed in perfect community and in perfect love. Think about this. Before anything else was made, God existed in perfect communion of holiness and love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't create because he was lacking anything, but he created because he wanted us to share in the communion of himself, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect holiness and in perfect love. He wanted to display his holiness and his love and his glory in the creation that he made so that we might see him and know him and enjoy him. This is what stands behind creation. And it was John, in John 17, as Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, he said, just as you loved me before the foundations of the world, God, I pray that they might know me and know the love that I enjoyed with you before the foundation of the world. You see, I think this is important that God comes first. It was Francis Schaeffer who said it this way, and I think it's helpful for us. He says there's two possibilities before us. Either everything came into, the being, came into being as a result of an impersonal beginning. That's really the claim of naturalism and the claim of, uh, of evolution, that everything came into being as a result of an impersonal beginning. Over a long period of time, by chance, a number of things happened that resulted in life beginning and that life evolving over time into what it has become today. I'm not misrepresenting the, the basic understanding of what is offered apart from a theistic understanding of creation. That is the understanding. That with enough time and with enough chance, we've gotten to where we are. And with that understanding, you have option number one, door number one, if you will. And behind door number two is not an impersonal beginning, but a personal beginning, a personal God who's made all things. And when you think about those two beginnings, perhaps there's more that could be said about each of them and nuances within all of them. 
Some would claim a deism where God created and kicked off things and then stepped away from it. A Christian understanding of theism is a God who is both transcendent above creation and imminent, near, and involved in creation. Uh, and there may be different ways in which people articulate a materialistic, naturalistic, evolutionary view. We'll leave that uh, for further conversation. But with those two uh, basic possibilities, everything came from an impersonal beginning or everything came from a, a personal beginning. Which of these two makes more sense of the world that you see with your own eyes and that you experience in your life today? Which makes sense of the fact that the earth hangs right where it does? Any closer to the sun, we'd burn up. Any further away from the sun, we'd freeze to death. What makes sense of the fact that we were made for a longing for human interaction and for relationship? That we were made to know and be known. That that longing that we have not to be alone. What makes sense of of our understanding of these things than the world that we experience today? An impersonal beginning or a personal beginning? I believe Genesis 1 argues for a personal beginning. And behind a God who creates is a God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who exists in perfect communion of holiness and love. And he creates so that we might experience that with him. So God comes first. And then secondly, remember, these are foundational truths. I, I actually don't think you can, you can disagree on these things and, and be faithful to what, what Genesis is, is telling us. It tells us that God created everything out of nothing. That he created everything out of nothing. He alone created, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says, as particularly this understanding of the word bara, this word for create, is the idea that he is this exclusive act of God in which he creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. He creates out of nothing. We make and form and build, and, and we see later on that God does those things too. And when we make and our create, creativity reflects our creator God, but God alone can bring something out of nothing. God, God's act of creating is unique. Our creating always depends on pre-existing materials to use for our creation. But God creates out of nothing. He alone can create the raw materials and then form the raw materials as he see fits. He alone can speak and it is so. I don't know if you've ever tried it. I've tried to speak and make things to be and it never works. You know, let there be cheesecake and it doesn't happen. Right. Uh, like the closest thing we get to this is like if you have a smart home, like let there be light and then the light comes on. Right. That's like just a, a glimpse of what it's like to be God. If you have a smart home. All right. Uh, or if you use Alexa or if you use Siri. But even then they're like, I'm sorry, I do not understand what you're talking about. You know, like I can speak and Alexa's like, and it is not so. You know, like when, when we have somebody come to the house and Alexa's playing, I feel like I'm a mean person. I'm like, Alexa, stop. You know, and she keeps playing, you know, and um, the fact that I referred to uh, artificial intelligence as she, you know, that uh, shows us how perhaps we're slipping here. But um, God alone creates out of nothing and he creates by the power of his word. Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was um, <clears throat> that what is seen was not made out of so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So in essence, he's saying what, is what was made was made out of what did not exist. God creates from nothing. And it indeed is a mystery to understand 
that God is first and that he creates everything out of nothing. It was Augustine who I referred earlier, jokingly later in his life, when replied to the question of uh, what God was doing before, the, before he created the world, he jokingly said he was preparing hell for those who pry into such mysteries. Uh, that, that as we wrestle with these things, it's sometimes hard to understand what is all going on, but we, we see what God is saying. The, the import of what Genesis 1 says is that God is first and that God alone is our creator. And he creates everything by his sovereign power, by his word, out of nothing. And then secondly, what the inference that we draw from the creation account is that God created, uh, God the creator is distinct from the creation. This is important, that God the creator is distinct from the creation. Creation is not one with God. Sorry, Mother Nature. Creation is not a part of God. Creation is distinct from God, and God is sovereign over all creation. And in a world in which we have, at times, a type of um, uh, return to to nature and this finding oneness with nature, uh, and in many ways it's a a small reflection that God has made these things, and we we get a glimpse of him as we get near them. We're reminded of something that's out there that isn't us. But often our hearts is to want to believe that that thing that we're looking for, maybe that God has made that that's a part of us or that the creation is a part of God or or somehow the creation is God. And Genesis one reminds us that the creation is distinct from the creator. I think this is important that we have a right understanding of the world both in relation to God, also so that we can have a right understanding here in a moment. We'll look at of our role in creation. So if creation isn't God and it isn't one with God, it isn't a part of God, but it's distinct from God and God is sovereign over all creation. When God puts us in creation, then we have a responsibility to carry out in that creation. We are not passive bystanders in this world. That God has given us a role that we'll see here in a minute. And that hangs upon an understanding that the creator is distinct from the creation. This is foundational to our faith. And as I mentioned earlier, though God is distinct from his creation, he is not distant from his creation. And that is also uh, incredibly important. We see his presence woven throughout the creation account of Genesis 1, and next week we'll see it in Genesis 2, that God is active and at work in his creation, and he is near those whom he has created. The Spirit of God representing the presence of God, the the presence of God in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve that we see in Genesis 2 speaks to 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 the nearness of God, a transcendent God who made all things and yet who is imminent, who draws near. All of that hangs upon an understanding that the creation is distinct from the Creator. And then fourthly, we see that God created all things good. This refrain throughout chapter one, after each day of creation, uh, is that he looked at what was made and it was good. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, and then the climax of it all in verse 31, it was very good. He made creation good. Now, this is the ultimate good. That reflects his character, not a derived good. You see, if, if Emily were to give me instructions, my wife, on how to make dinner, and I didn't burn it, then I might think to myself, this is pretty good. I, I made an edible dinner. 
It's pretty good. That's a, <clears throat> that's a derived goodness based on comparison to how bad it most likely could have been. Uh, that's not what it means when God says that his creation is good. His creation is good because it is as he intended. It was according to his purpose, according to his will. It's good in relation to himself. Francis Schaeffer, I mentioned earlier, says every step and every spear of creation, the whole thing put together, man himself and his total environment, the heavens and the earth conforms to myself is what God is saying when he says it is very good. It reflects me. And so our understanding of, of creation, including our created body, we're not, we're not just souls that are trapped in a body trying to get out of it, a uh, type of Gnosticism and dualism. We're, we're, we're not just, this isn't just a container that we're living in that we can kick away, that we have a responsibility to steward the creation in which we're given. The foundation of creation care is grounded right here in Genesis 1. The foundation of a responsible environmentalism is grounded right here in Genesis 1. Also grounded in the fact that creation is indeed distinct from the creator, right? So lest we put too much emphasis and, uh, and not enough emphasis on God, it corrects us there, but also reminds us that this stuff isn't bad and we're not trying to get out of it. We're not trying to escape the material world to a spiritual, ethereal world. God made both body and soul immaterial and material. They're holistic and together. These two things go together. God created all things good, and that has a radical impact on how we operate in this life as well as how we view our own bodies. Next week, we're going to dig into Genesis 1, 26 through 28, as well as chapter 2, and look at God's design for humanity. Uh, but here in the fifth point, I want us to see that God created a historical Adam and Eve in his image as humanity's first parents. This is a lot to, to say here, and all of it's important. God created a historical Adam and Eve. I think if you don't have a historical Adam and Eve, you're calling Jesus a liar. Who referred to our first parents and their sin as the original sin and as the sin that through our connection to, to the first Adam, we all are born with this sin nature that works itself out in particular sinful ways in our life. Without that uh, understanding of historical Adam and Eve, we, we call Jesus a liar. But he not only made a historical Adam and Eve, he made them in his image as a unique climax of all creation, nothing else is made in his image. Everything else is made according to its kind. We are made in the image of God, which at the bare minimum means we're made for a relationship with God, but has a whole host of implications that we'll look at next week. And then he made us as humanity's first parents. What this means is that we're defined by who God says we are. We're dependent on God. We're not self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. And we are accountable to God. We are not in charge. We are not the creator. God is the creator and we are accountable to him. And then finally, God created everything for his glory. We said last week that the seventh day of creation, or the seventh day of rest was not rest because he needed to be rejuvenated, but it was rest because of exaltation, looking at all he had done and being satisfied with it. It was all very good according to his design, reflecting his character. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. All of this was made to point to the greatness and the glory of the Creator God. This, I think, these six points um, 
are, I think, the foundational truths that we must hold to from Genesis 1 that guide us as we have the conversation related to the particulars of understanding how God created, how old the earth is, how all of these things work out. And we press in here and close with this uh, just final thought here. As we unpack all of this from Genesis 1, I can't help but just step back and ask why it matters. And you see how, how uh, significant all of these things are. It matters because God defines reality. We have a God who is there and who speaks. We know why and at least in part how God created because he revealed it to us in his word. We're not, we're not in the dark on these things. God is the, the anchor of the whole universe. He made all things, sustains all things, and one day will renew all things according to his design. And all those who trust in him will join in the resounding praise of all of creation that God is worthy. He's the, he's the defining reality of our life. We're not at the center of all things. God is at the center of all things. And when we see that, it changes how we look at ourselves, how we look at life, how we view our understanding of this world. It also tells us that we matter. And it's important that we matter not because of what we have done, how we look, or where we were born. We matter because God made us. This means that we matter from the time God fashions us in our mother's womb. Even if you had Down syndrome or even if you were born into poverty or even if your birth will make your parents' life hard, we matter because we're made in the image of God. It matters not because we assign value to life, not because we choose to value life. It matters because God created us in his image. It matters before birth. It matters throughout life. It matters unto natural death. We matter because we're made in God's image. And this is the foundation, the sanctity of life that has shaped our understanding um, of, of how we treat one another and how we live in this world. This foundational truth is, is, is not only what grounds our understanding of sanctity of life, it's also what grounds our understanding of racial and ethnic unity. The shame of all shame is that some took the Bible that clearly teaches this in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and taught that it could uh, distinguish between inferior and superior. And yet in God's providence, God used some who were subjected uh, to that false teaching to read the Bible for themselves and said, hold up. I got a check that I want to cash that tells us that we're all made in God's image. And God used believers who saw the truth of what God said and said we all matter, not because of what we do or what color our skin is or where we're born, but because God made us. And that same radical truth needs to ground us as we think through these issues of life today. And then we have a purpose. We're stewards of creation. We have work to do, God tells us. We're not here aimlessly, but he's given us a purpose. And of course, our specific purposes will take their different shape and form. But all of us have an understanding that life isn't meaningless, but life has a direction. And that direction is defined by what God has made us for. But also it tells us that we're not alone. Not only do we have this responsibility and accountability to God, but I don't know if you've ever felt this way. And especially over this past year, there are times where you just feel alone and isolated wondering uh, what to do and what to think about all that's taking place. When it feels like no one's there, when it feels like your prayers don't go above the ceiling of your room, the truth of creation is that it reminds us that we're not alone. We didn't come from an impersonal beginning with billions of years and chance. We came from a personal beginning, a triune God who existed in perfect communion of holiness and love and who made us to know him. 
We have <clears throat> this hope that we're not alone. And finally, we're made for this. As <clears throat> Rebecca comes to close us in worship, between Genesis 1, 2, and Revelation 5, a lot happens. You say, what does Revelation 5 say? Revelation 5 says this, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them, all of creation. And they were saying this, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. See, all that takes place between Genesis 1-2 and Revelation 5, a lot of it has to do with our sin and our rebellion against God and God's promise not to leave us in our rebellion and our sin, but to rescue us and redeem us. And at the center of it, he tells us that the way back to God's good design is through Jesus, our creator and our redeemer, the one who was in the beginning, the one in whom all things were made, the one who sustains and holds all things together. The creator of the universe humbled himself and took on flesh and lived a perfect life of obedience to God. And he hung on the cross. The son of God, the second member of the Trinity, hung on the cross for our sin. And they laid him in a tomb. And on the third day he rose. And now he has ascended and he is seated at the right hand of God. And one day all of creation will catch up with what God's word tells us in Revelation 5. One day everything under heaven and earth will willingly confess that Jesus is worthy, that Jesus is glorious, that the one who sits on the throne was also slain on the cross so that the way back to God's good creation is through receiving his finished work on our behalf. And not only does he take us back to God's good creation, he gives us new creation. That's the hope of the gospel And it reminds us that we're made for this. God made us to know him and enjoy him. And friends, it it doesn't take a rocket science to tell us that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. This life isn't how it's talked about in Genesis 1. It's not very good. We'll look further at why that's the case because of sin. But today I tell you that what God made us for, it's possible to experience through faith in Christ. And these foundational truths ground us as believers and swing wide the invitation of Jesus to anyone who has ears to hear. Come to me. Come to me and find what you were made for. Let's pray.